Welcome to the Blockchain VC, a podcast about crypto and the digital assets ecosystem. My name is Tomer Federman, and I'm the managing partner at Federman Capital. We invest in the most promising blockchain startups across the globe. I have more than 15 years of experience in tech, and before starting the fund, I was on the product side at Facebook, where I led product strategy and global growth of some of Facebook's major ad products. Previously, I also lived in Silicon Valley for a few years, where I attended Stanford Business School. You can find me on Twitter at Tomer Federman. Before we begin, please note that this podcast is for informational purposes only. And all the opinions expressed on this show, either by guests or me, do not reflect the opinions of Federman Capital. Nothing on the Blockchain VC podcast represents an investment or financial advice. Please, do your own research. Also, if you like this episode of the Blockchain VC and want to help us bring more awareness to the space, I'd really appreciate it if you can rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast. This only takes a few seconds and helps us get the word out. Okay, let's do this. Really excited to welcome to the show today, Tim Oglevy, co-founder and CEO of Staked. Tim, welcome to the show. Tomer, thanks for having me. Of course. So, Tim, before we dive into Staked and the exciting developments uh, with your company, you would love to first hear more about your background and how you got into the space. Sure. Well, I uh, generally have been a technology entrepreneur for, for about 20 years. I spent the first 10 years of that uh, helping other people build businesses, typically coming in pre-product, pre-business, defining the product, turning it into a real business, scaling that, and, and then successful exit across a, a variety of different uh, verticals, consumer search, uh, comparison shopping, some ad technology. Uh, and then the last 10 years, I've really spent building businesses on my own. Uh, one ad technology business, a demand-side platform that I sold to a company here in New York called Media Ocean a mobile gaming data business. Uh, and I was, I was running a lifestyle business where I was looking for a bunch of other technology opportunities. And I, I was looking into a couple different projects on blockchain and, and really sort of got the bug as a lot of people do. And um, as I was looking at all the hot projects, all the hot projects had staking at the heart of them. And that looked a whole lot to me like an interest rate. And actually, the very first job I had out of school was on the debt derivatives desk at JP Morgan. Um, so I got exposed to this like huge range of products that get created out of a simple interest rate and, and really have conviction that that range of products is going to get recreated in the crypto universe. And so that was really the genesis of how we got started on, on stake was an idea to to start building a lot of those financial products that make up the fixed income and fixed income derivatives world. Interesting. So we'll get to that in a second. But uh, before we talk specifically about staked, what is it about blockchain that made you so interested in the space? Yeah, I think um, generally speaking, I you know I come from a computer science background and a technology background, and and for me, the idea of programmable money that you know you can imbue with with contractual here's the things it's going to do and it, and it will just do it 
irrespective of counterparties or things like that is really the thing that, that I get excited about. Yeah, absolutely. Right. Uh, same here. Uh, I feel like a lot of people, even in financial services, right, when you talk to folks, you know, that work at the bank or at some of the investment, the more traditional kind of legacy investment companies, I don't know how many of them realize just how disruptive this new technology is. I, I think that's exactly right. I think it's it feels a lot like, you know, phone companies pre-internet who, who just don't understand that the foundational element is potentially just going to be entirely rewritten. Exactly, which I guess is what makes it so exciting. Okay, so so you got into blockchain, you saw that programmable money offers a major opportunity, and then you started to think about staking specifically because it reminded you of... Well, yeah, I, I think what, what attracted me to staking was this idea that most cryptocurrency today is effectively stuffed under a digital mattress. I mean, if you if you hold Bitcoin, um, typically you're just holding it, and there are opportunities to you're actually losing a little bit as as inflation goes to pay the miners to secure the network. And everyone loves earning interest rates, uh, and so staking to me. As, as kind of the core of it, my, my assumption, which is proven to be true, is that everyone's going to want to earn that interest rate. And as I asked folks in the blockchain world, well, you know, how do you do it and what are the rates? Nobody could even answer those questions for me 18 months ago. And so that, that really felt like the, the kernel of an opportunity that then we started talking to customers, primarily crypto funds, who, who were, you know, basically told us, yes, this is something we need. And, and that's how that's how all, I think, good projects get started is, is a customer or user telling you, this is what I want to, this is something I'm willing to pay for or something I need to happen. And and so that was, that was kind of the early genesis. Got it. And for listeners uh, who may not be familiar with the concept of uh, proof of stake, would you mind for a second just explain, you know, the difference between proof of work and proof of stake? Sure, sure. So proof of work, um, you're probably familiar with, but the, the generally each new block that gets created, there is a competition to solve a mathematical puzzle first. And so miners in, in proof of work uh, throw a ton of c- computational resources at solving that puzzle as quickly as possible. And, and when they do that, they get the right to create the next block in the blockchain. And along with that comes a, a reward in the form of the fees in, in that block, as well as um, a inflationary reward in, in new currency. And proof of stake, the challenge with proof of work uh, is a couple. Number one, it, it, people spend about $6 billion in energy annually to secure the, the Bitcoin network. And number two, it's not, it's not final. And so um, you have to wait six, 10 blocks before your transaction. You can actually be secure that that, that transaction was actually final. And so proof of stake has been proposed as an alternative to that, where instead of solving a mathematical puzzle, uh, holders of currency vote with their stake. 
and they, they, they nominate a node that's running in the system. And they say, I'm going to, to put my stake behind this node. And if, if that stake is honest, let's say I have 10% of the cryptocurrency, I will get 10% of the potential rewards associated with it. If, my, if the node that I'm running is honest, it works correctly in the system and secures the network. And if I'm wrong, I'm going to get slashed, which means I'm going to lose a little bit of uh, my stake. And so the, the advantages of this system solve the two problems with um, proof of work. Number one, it doesn't require a lot of energy. And number two, it, it, it has a nice additional property, a couple additional properties of being a little bit more secure and having immediate finality. So those are the major differences. And I think you, know, you are seeing most new projects use proof of stake as a security mechanism because a lot of those benefits are uh, inherent to the platform. And, and you're seeing uh, things like Ethereum and others move from a proof of work model to a proof of stake model because of that. Mm -hmm. And I think also worth noting is excluding Bitcoin, which I think is just so much farther along than pretty much everyone else. If you're starting a new proof of work system and uh, network, then the risk of you know a fifty-one percent attack could be quite significant. Oh, absolutely. That's a that's a great point. I mean, the uh, anything that's not Bitcoin can effectively get fifty-one percent attacked. Right. Right. Over. Exactly. And we've in fact we've already seen that certainly yep. certain networks, right, like Ethereum Classic, for instance, and others, where you know the market cap just isn't isn't as much of a barrier as it is in the Bitcoin case. And so bad actors can just basically take over that network and perform a 51% attack uh, as opposed to proof of stake. That's right. And one of the benefits of proof of stake is that that just can't happen. And there are, there are real ways to avoid attacks like that. So even if you have disproportionately sized networks, you're not going to run into the same scenario 10 years down the line. Okay, so now that we've um, talked about that for a second and explained the two concepts, what is staked? What do you guys do? So, um, so getting back to what proof of stake and how proof of stake networks work, you know, there is a you, you've got to nominate an honest node in the system, and, and that node to earn your interest rate or your yield on the from the from the rewards. That node has to operate 100% of the time, has to be up all the time, and, and it has to be highly secure. And it has to, because hacking, it introduces security risks, which can get you slashed. And so what Staked does is provide a technology service that basically runs honest nodes. And so we provide secure, reliable staking for an investor who doesn't want to be operating in the DevOps business. So they want to um, make investment allocation decisions and earn the rewards associated with staking, but they don't necessarily want to be worrying about their servers at 12 o'clock on a Saturday night. And that's, that's what we do. Right. So in many ways, um, and correct me if I'm wrong, you're counting on the proof of stake market to continue and, you know, continue growing, right? Because again, obviously, the, the the biggest player right now is Bitcoin by far. 
which is proof of work, and you're counting on the proof of stake market to continue to evolve as we we see it, you know, evolving over the past, I guess, couple of years. Well, I think I think our short term, you know, our, our business today, we support 16 proof of stake networks. We'll probably support 30 by the end of next year. And so, so yes, in the short term, we spend a lot of time on the, the trend today that is a shift from proof of work to proof of stake. I think more broadly, though, in addition to the 16 chains that we support on proof of on staking, we also offer another way that investors can earn yield on their crypto, which is through trustless lending. And so we have a smart contract um, called Ray or Robo Advisor for Yield that monitors the yields available on a variety of trustless lending opportunities. So Compound, DYDX, and Fulcrum. And it'll automatically move your assets to whatever is yielding the highest at any given time. So if, if Compound is at 5% for the DAI or the USDC markets and Fulcrum is at 6 your assets will, will move to Fulcrum. And if that situation reverses itself, the assets will move back. So at Staked, we think about um, not just running on proof-of-stake networks, but on how do you earn a yield on your cryptocurrency in any generally trustless fashion. We don't take custody. We don't get involved with counterparty risk. But getting back to the thing I love about crypto, which is its programmable qualities, we're basically helping to unlock the programmable opportunities to earn yield on your crypto. Interesting. And how does the robo-advisor work? Like how often do you check the, the yields on the different platforms? Well, it's, I mean, it's running all the time, right? I mean, our, our core, one of our, our things we're really good at are systems that run like clockwork all day, every day. Um, generally speaking, we will make anywhere between 10, uh, two to 10 reallocation decisions on a daily basis. So, you know, you're, you're moving funds around relatively quickly to take advantage of small opportunities and that it works. So um, a, a person on Twitter went and put $100 into Compound, DYDX, Fulcrum, uh, Ray, and actually a, a competitive product that, that purports to do the same thing. And, and they sat back and waited a month. And we materially outperformed all four of those alternatives because it's, um, you know, it's got real math behind it. And, and this is math that you can, you can feel confident in that there's not, a, there's not an optimal allocation that, that you could otherwise do. Uh, and so we're always kind of taking that opportunity for the pool of, of capital that's deposited. Got it. And and can you talk a bit more about the security aspect of it? I think you mentioned earlier that it's non-custodial. How does the process actually work? Uh, so if, right. if I put my crypto assets, I guess, on the line or, or stake them full staked, I keep hold of them or, or how, how do you do that? Exactly? Yes, so you, don't, you don't hand over your keys. You are depositing your assets into a smart contract. And um, so that smart contract was written with security in mind. Uh, it's been audited several times, uh, most recently by Trail of Bits, who's the leading security auditor in, in the space. 
but there is some degree of smart contract risk here. I think you know one of the nice things about smart contract risk is the bigger you get over time, the more eyes you have on uh, the project and the less likely it is to have a horrible security bug in it, which is very different from the situation when you're an exchange or a custodian. And the bigger you get, the bigger a target gets painted on your back because it just means there's more money to be stolen if you happen to get into it. So we like, generally, I like smart contract risk over time. And uh, we spend a ton of time and effort trying to make sure that, that that risk goes to as close to zero as, as we can get. Right. So I, I guess, how do you do that? Is it is it by auditing, like you mentioned earlier? Are there other processes that you put in place? Yep. So we have both static and dynamic tools that we use. And in fact, some of those are, are put out by trail of bits to their customers so that uh, you can identify things. And then I think it's, you know, having people who, as you, as you think about development, you think about security first. I mean, staked as a, as a core business, our job is ensuring people either don't get slashed on the staking side of things or don't lose money in, in smart contracts. And so our sort of first operation is always about ensuring that the preservation of client assets is job one. And then earning them a little bit more is, is an important part of our role. But the, the preservation of assets is really critical in this. And so we, we just don't take shortcuts. We let things take longer uh, to ensure that we're doing them right. Right. Absolutely. And then, you know, worst case scenario, is there any insurance policy in place? So insurance is tricky, um, but we do have a we do have a coverage through a company called Nexus Mutual. I'm not sure if you're familiar yep. with it, but they provide smart contract coverage. And so that is and, and that's a combination of we uh, put some forward as well as as individuals can go and, and actually purchase smart contract coverage. And because they're familiar with our security setup, uh, our audit, that actually ends up being you know, you can get it at a, a reasonable rate. I think I think we can get it down to 1.3% or so. Uh, and where you've got assets like USDC and DAI that are yielding 5%, 6% annually on a US dollar stable coin, there's still a very profitable, effectively a carry trade, right? Where you can take US dollars that yield 1.5% and put it into... A smart contract, take out insurance on that, and then you're actually you're, you're picking up three to four percent annually. Right, and and customers can choose whether they want to opt in or not. That's right. That's right. We provide some degree of coverage, but you know we're just not capitalized in a way that we can cover what we think is is the opportunity here. So so we put forward some in the event that there's something inadvertent. And and then customers, to the extent they want to top up on that, they've got that opportunity. Got it. Got it. Um, can you talk about your multi-tier staking infrastructure? Sure. So the core of, of what we offer is secure, reliable staking. And so what that means is we're generally protecting investors against two risks that are the are, are two ways you get slashed. Number one, some form of, of extended downtime. 
So if you are participating in proof of stake networks, you have to be up 100% of the time. That's both because you need to produce blocks to actually earn revenue, but in some some networks, also extended downtime, you can get slashed for. So staying up 100% of the time is really important. The second risk is getting hacked. So our technology has been built from the ground up to protect against those two risks. Uh, in terms of uptime, we have a, um, a system that uses Kubernetes, which is Google's open source container orchestration system. And, and we sit across multiple cloud providers and deploy containers. These are, these are nodes that are running the, the proof of stake blockchain software across multiple different cloud providers. So you can think of us as kind of sitting across six different data centers across AWS, Google Cloud, DigitalOcean. And we deploy those nodes based on network conditions or data center outages, things like that. If all of AWS were to go down, we can redeploy in Google Cloud in 10 minutes. So there's no downtime. And then from a second perspective around um, ensuring we don't get hacked, generally the, the thing you're trying to protect here is we have validator keys. These are not the private keys that, that represent uh, the, the user's funds. But if we were to double sign a block, it's also known as equivocating, um, or a hacker were to do that, that would, that would lose funds on behalf of clients. And so anytime we have a server that needs to sign blocks, it sits in a, uh, a private network and, and really only talks to another tier of our um of our infrastructure that we call the listener tier. And that basically, we've got one set of servers that are designed to sync with the chain, peer with the network, and, and generally perform publicly uh, available activities. And then deep in our network is a are the signing machines that actually perform uh, any signing operation and then, and then propagate that block out to, to other servers. And then we use, as a further measure, we're using either HSMs or multi-party computation-driven signing so that even if an intruder were to get onto our machines, they wouldn't even get access to the, the keys. Mm -hmm. That's a really long-winded way of saying we are highly <laughs> secure. Um, and it, it's evidenced by the fact that we work with kind of a who's who of uh, blockchain funds, custodians, and exchanges in the space who've diligenced our technology and come to the conclusion that we're best in class at, at mm -hmm. doing those. And, and are these really your primary target? Like, who, who are your clients? Is it mostly exchanges and funds? I assume it's mostly institutions, yeah. right? It's not it's not for retail and individual. Our services, we have 2,000 plus individual addresses who have uh, delegated to us. But our, our primary business comes with working with uh, funds and, and institutions. So... Pantera Capital, Multicoin Capital, Block Tower Capital, Arrington Capital. These are some of the, the larger Fenbushi and, and Continue Capital out of Asia. Th those are some of the larger funds that, that work with us and, and we handle their staking for them. And then we also provide an API-driven service for exchanges and custodians who are, are looking to open those up to their customers. 
without necessarily having to go as deep into the staking business as, as we go. And those generally are partnerships that we don't name uh, largely at their request. Mm-hmm. And why do they, these customers you know, opt to use your services versus stake directly? Some of the names you mentioned you know, are deep into the crypto space. I'm sure at least to a certain degree, they would be comfortable kind of doing that directly. Why do they choose to use staked? I think it's a combination of it's cost effective, right? I mean, this ultimately is a, is a business that has some costs, both in terms of time and server costs. Uh, so, so that's one piece of it is, is we're a reasonably good deal. On that front, and and number two, I think they view themselves as as portfolio allocators, not uh, server operators. I think I think one of the early, early early on, we had a number of customers tell us, you know, I really want to run my own proof of stake infrastructure so I can learn stuff, and so they they went off and they ran some nodes for a while and came back to us six months later and says. I'm not learning anything except that, you know, I have to update my servers once every three weeks and things like that, that they just like, I think if you're running a fund, you want to be thinking about what are the investment opportunities that can get me 10 X or hundred X, not do I have to upgrade my Cosmos node next Tuesday and stake just handles that. And it sort of operates automatically in the background. And, and I think that's been a successful relationship. Mm-hmm. I mean, many Many of these funds also work with lots of other outside providers, accountants, fund management folks. Uh, and, and we're kind of one of those services that if you're a crypto fund, I think most are deciding it's probably better to outsource. Right. No, I think that that makes total sense, right? It's not their core, to your point, it's not their core competency or, or even focus. They're looking for their next investment. It also gives them a lot of flexibility in that if they sell an investment, they don't have to shut down a bunch of servers. And when they add a new investment, they can immediately turn on something with staked versus having to go through some form of, of server. Right. Building. And how, how quickly can they go live? That's actually a really interesting point, right? So let's say they, you know, let's say we're talking about a hedge fund and, you know, they invested into a staking protocol today and maybe a day or two after they're already selling it. How quickly can they go live, shut it down, then go live again? So so it's very easy to work with staked in that we can get you staked in 10 minutes. And that's a that's a pretty simple operation where you're you're basically signing an on-chain message. So if you can if you can get your asset and sign it somehow, it's easy to get started. That that said, you know, if you are a quant-driven fund who wants to be in and out in under 24 hours, staking is generally not a, um, an appropriate vehicle for that. There are, for security of the blockchain, there are a bunch of, of lockups associated with the asset. And that can be anywhere from three days to three weeks where you have to unbond before you actually get your, uh, your stake back and can sell it. So our, our customers and our core clientele tend to be somewhat longer term holders than day trade type looking at, you know, there's, a, there's an opportunity to trade in and then trade out uh, at a, a slightly different level. Ours is much more of a, I've got a point of view that this is going to be the smart contract system of the future. I'm going to hold this for 
six months, 12 months, 24 months, and enjoy that appreciation. And while I'm doing it, I want to earn the 10% annualized additional yield from staking. That tends to be much more of the customer mindset we deal with. On the lending side of things, those are both immediately, those are immediately liquid. Um, so, so we are seeing a, a faster paced clientele there who are really looking at it as a liquidity product. Yeah, no, it makes sense. I mean, you want to focus on new staking when you have a longer term view. One thing I'm also interested in is, and I also saw that on your website, the the yield rate tend to vary a lot between different crypto assets, right? So for instance, I think LivePeer, like on your site, you quote like 120% annual return versus let's say DAI or Tezos, right. which is more like 6 or 7%. Can you talk a bit about that? Like how come it varies so much between the different assets and what can we learn from that? Yeah, I think that's kind of one of the fun things about um, a lot of the crypto experimentation that's going on right now is that you've got uh, each of these token projects has, has basically created their own economic structure. Um, and, and there's a lot to be learned from that. I think, I think, you know, the most typical staking economics that we see tend to pay between five and 15% annually for securing the network. And, you know, that's a, that's kind of a core that we see around Cosmos and Tezos and um, a number of others. And then you have outliers who are using a different approach. In the, in the case of LivePeer, LivePeer is a video transcoding network where it's actually uh, your staking is not just staking to secure the network, but it's actually to give you the right to perform work in their network. And there are a number of other projects that work like this. Filecoin is a great example um, where you will stake and, and provide storage. Live peer, you're providing video transcoding. And in those instances, the active participation is much higher. And live peer is looking to get uh, people who are really committed to both staking and to run the video transcoding operations. And so they pay suppliers in inflationary token a lot to uh, to show up and ensure that their infrastructure is, is run properly. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I think what we are starting to see though is a little bit more normalization on some of these things as we see uh, what works and, and what doesn't. Yeah, it seems like most of them are kind of in the range you mentioned, right? Like anywhere between five to 15, which by the way, <laughs> You know, we keep talking about crypto, but certainly if you compare that to the interest rates on fiat, oh, I mean, that's just so much more compelling. Negative interest rates in, in Europe. Yeah. Uh, that's right. I think, you know, the the opportunity as people start to wake up to a number of these things is, is pretty interesting. And we actually, we are building a number of tools to cross that bridge where people who, you know, are in fiat and are thinking about, how do I take advantage of, of yields in crypto, uh, make it easier versus you know, our core clientele who is a crypto native? Right. And I think DAI, for instance, is a prime example of that, right? That's right. Basically, you're holding a digital dollar, but suddenly, guess what? You know, the yield is just much higher than if you took the, you know, your, 
your dollars and put it in a savings account in your local bank. That's right. And if, if that situation were to occur in traditional finance, that arbitrage would disappear in 10 minutes. And Absolutely. The, you know, it's the lack of liquidity in crypto that in, has, has allowed that situation to, to persist for a long period of time. But I mean, some of these, yeah, I guess, yeah, I was about to say some of some of these tokens actually do have some fairly decent liquidity. But I guess, yes, if you compare it to fiat, it's still very, very, very small. It's, it's all it's all relative. The, you know, they they are big crypto numbers in, in liquidity and very small fiat and, and traditional finance numbers. Right. But kind of switching gears a bit, team, how much do you and the team monitor Ethereum? 2.0 and the, the move or at least the planned move from proof of work to proof of stake for Ethereum, which I think probably is going to be a game changer for your business. We agree. Uh, we monitor it all the time. We spend a weekly meeting where we um, have a number of streams going, both in terms of technically where we're running a number of testnet clients internally, uh, as well as as we will have at least two, probably three different product offerings related to how people can stake Ethereum with us. Um, one of those will be built into our yield product, our Ray product, so that if the yield on staking is higher, you can take advantage of that. Or if the yield on lending is higher, it will switch automatically. Uh, and, and others will just be helping people run nodes uh, either for themselves or for a pool that they want to run, and uh, we'll enable all that stuff. I think I think that move, just from a market cap size, is really important for us, and so we are spending a lot of time and energy. Are you also in constant contact with the Ethereum Foundation? And yeah. so we we know the foundation, we know the teams who are building the different clients. Ethereum, you probably know, is a really decentralized organization. So that's kind of the fun part. Is there's there's right. people doing lots of different things. Um, but but yeah, we know we have a, a very good beat on exactly what's going on. And curious, what's your view on that, right? Because there certainly are some skeptics out there who doubt Ethereum's ability to make that change while the network is already out there live and so many people are already using it. Do you have a, do you have a point of view on that? Like, how confident are you that this transition is actually going to happen? I'm highly, I'm highly confident. I'm highly confident the transition is going to happen. I think the um, questions are around timing, and the questions are around you know when you're moving from phase zero to phase one or phase two. But uh, I, I, from all I can tell, phase zero, which is really enable staking and is kind of the first. Uh, step in the transition process, it looks like it's going to be a Q1 or a Q2 event next year. And, and I think once you start that process, uh, you're, going to, you're going to see a lot of momentum that's going to, to push in that direction probably faster than I think, I think people anticipate. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, if they are successful, I think it's, it's going to have huge implications, right? A, of course, Ethereum, just by the sheer size of it, you know, moving to proof of stake. But I think also, you know, if Ethereum does it and they are successful, then I think potentially it's going to also have impact on future protocols being developed. Oh, I think, I think that's right. And I think, you know, look, I, I, 
I don't think Bitcoin is shifting to proof of stake anytime soon, but um, I think, you know, one of the things that you need to, to feel confident is a in the wild, very large scale asset that uses proof of stake. And, and so, so far we've done billion dollar assets um, and, and markets and going to a 20 or $25 billion is, is a big step and, and a lot of confidence in proof of stake as a, as a model. And, Right, absolutely. Because again, one of I think the the some of the doubters out there are saying, well, proof of stake hasn't really, and and I think to a large degree there, there's certainly something there, which is you know proof of stake hasn't really really been tested at scale, or at least not you know significant scale. And with Ethereum, potentially that narrative is, uh, I mean, it's going to be more difficult to argue that if again if they're successful in making that transition. Right. I- and the only thing I would challenge there is, you know, on Cosmos and Tezos and Decred, there are very large bug bounties available, right? $100 million is, is yours if you could actually hack a proof of stake system. And um, I, I take a lot of comfort in the fact that that's not happening and that the, um, you know, the, the systems have been operating for more than a year at hundreds of millions of dollars. Um but it'll be terrific to kind of 25x that in, in size and get even more confidence that, that things work properly. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think it's a combination of the size, right? So if it's like 25x, but also time. When you think about like the Lindy effect, certainly, you know, Bitcoin maximally is talking about like the Lindy effect. You know, Bitcoin been around in existence for, what, 11 years now and nobody has been able to... Um so yeah, yeah, I think it's it's the combination of the two. By the way, what's your curious, what's your view of Bitcoin then? I don't like you said, I don't think anyone thinks it's gonna change anytime soon, right? Probably never in terms of like the consensus protocol. Does like the fact that you're so all in on staking, does that mean that you are not so bullish about Bitcoin or no, quite, quite the opposite. I am, I am as strong a Bitcoin believer as, as probably anybody out there. I think, I think it's got the um, clear, it's the clear winner as a store of, of value asset as a thesis. And I think that thesis in a world where, you know, our, our national governments are just addicted to printing money. I think that's a amazing thesis. And so I, personally hold Bitcoin. I'm a strong believer in it. Um, I I think there are better alternatives for securing the network from proof of work. And I have some concerns about the um, the inflationary rewards going towards zero and, and what happens there. But I think those are problems that the Bitcoin community will solve. And, and Bitcoin as a store of value asset is going to be continue to to be incredibly valuable and, and probably grow in it. Huh. You really surprised me there. I tried. <laughs> I thought you were gonna say, oh, it's on proof of work. So you know they're using proof of work, so it's not as as good. So so you're you're a big believer in Bitcoin because because of the store of value narrative, but you think for other purposes, proof of stake more makes makes more sense and and is more efficient. Is that is that a fair summary? That's right. Look, I think there are um, probably four or five core use cases that I think you will see crypto take on. And one of them is store of value or or digital gold. 
um, I think, you know, as a programmable asset, a smart contract type asset, Bitcoin is, is really not very good at it because it's not, you know, it's not immediately final, doesn't really have a, a flexible programming language attached to it. And I think those are going to, uh, I think those narratives are going to continue to grow. And I don't necessarily pick winners, but uh, I think as, as those grow, I, you know, the, the size of the pie is just going to get bigger and bigger. So I think it, this is, in my mind, this is not a winner take all necessarily, but that there are going to be four or five winners for a variety of use cases. Privacy is probably another one that, that is an important one. Um, so that's that's kind of how I see the world. Mm-hmm. When you think about the, the competitive landscape, do you see a world where, because in my mind, like it's very, I think it's going to be very natural for some of the big custody providers to, and we already, I think, see that, right, to start offering staking services. You, you know, you have institutional clients using those services for custody. The assets are either already there or maybe it's, you know, non-custodial, but they, they use the, the, the custody product that, that is being offered. And then, like, it seems like a very natural next step for them to also offer staking. That being said, I know Coinbase are one of your investors. So curious how, how you see that. Sure. Yeah, I think, you know, everyone wants to earn staking rewards. And so if assets are at a custodian or on an exchange, the exchanges and custodians are, are in a wallet, uh, they're all going to have to figure out how do they offer staking. Some people will build their own internal tools. Uh, others will partner with best-in-class providers like State. I think you know customers generally do not love the idea of a custodian saying, I'm, I'm your custodian, who, who's generally in the business of, of keeping assets, you know, safe in a, in a deep, dark vault. And the only people you can interact with, the only services in crypto that you can use are my services. I think that's a really hard sell to particularly to sophisticated customers. I think Exchanges probably can get away with something like that. A custodian selling to institutions, that's, that's unlikely. Uh, and, and so I think, you know, what we're seeing as, as these guys roll services out is um, some combination of looking at building some tools in-house, but also looking at partnerships. And, and you know, I think, that, I think that's kind of naturally how the, the business probably evolves. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Interesting. And what's your view about more, more broadly kind of thinking about the market? Obviously, there's been a lot of talk for quite some time now about, you know, the institutions are coming, right? They're going to enter the space. I think we actually see a lot of examples of them already in, enter the space to mm-hmm. a certain degree. From your, I guess, daily interactions with institutional investors, where are we there? How comfortable are institutional investors in buying into holding, staking crypto assets? Well, I think there's a new class of institutions that is in crypto. And, and so, so I think that class is a very crypto native group of folks who are very comfortable doing these things. I think custody needs to get better, staking and, and lending services need to be easier, but generally they're very comfortable with it. 
And then as you move on the spectrum towards the more traditional folks, you know, you've got a, a variety of action of reaction from uh, they're interested, but a lot of the logistics are still too difficult. Mm-hmm. And I, I think seeing, you know, things like backed and Coinbase custody and a lot of, and fidelity and a lot of names where um, I think you'll have a lot more confidence interacting like like a, a more traditional institution will have a fair degree of confidence that if something goes wrong that backed or ice will take care of that situation i think is are positive signs for growth and i, and I think this is just a slow steady evolution versus a we're going to wake up six months from now and fidelity or goldman sachs is just pouring assets into the into the mix I think that's a pipe dream. I think this is just a steady uh, acknowledgement that the tools and regulatory frameworks are in place so that people can can move comfortably into crypto and, and start to allocate assets. And then they'll, to the extent that, that they see those or view them as an outperformer, they'll allocate more assets. And, I, and so I, that's the sort of future I anticipate on that. Yeah, I think I think that makes a lot of sense. I, I tend to say the same thing when I talk to people, right? Some of them are like, well, institutions are, haven't really arrived yet, or maybe the volume isn't much. And I'm like, well, you know, if we were to talk two, two three years ago, and I would tell you that the parent company of the New York Stock Exchange is going to enter the space and Fidelity, right, is going gonna, is gonna <laughs> to establish a new company to... And all these big names, right, JP Morgan and so forth, like, you know, you would think I'm crazy. That's right. So, yeah, I think I think you're absolutely right. It is a, probably a gradual process. And I think there's also a, a big educational element there, right? The, the more they go into the space, the more they learn about it, the more they become comfortable with it. And then we start to see more and more um, capital flowing into the space as well yeah. as a result. Yeah, that feels about it. Yeah. So what are the, beyond just staking, and, and I think you mentioned also custody, what are some of the other gaps that you see right now from your perspective interacting with institutional? What are the primary gaps that prevent them from, you know, either entering the space or maybe entering it more aggressively? What else needs to happen? Well, I think certainly in the U.S., one of the big areas is, is regulatory clarity and and a, a sort of, for lack of a better term, a blessing on the space would help a lot, right? I mean, I, there are a lot of, of institutions who, when they look at the SEC saying uh, there shouldn't be a Bitcoin ETF, for example, well, should I put my assets into Bitcoin? It sounds like the SEC is basically saying it's, it's not ready for prime time. And, and that, I think things like that tend to cast a, a dark shadow over the category that I'd love to see go away. And so I think, I think I'm think i not optimistic that the current SEC is going to uh, take some of those steps, but I think there's lots of, of forward-looking folks at the SEC who would like to provide that clarity. And I, I think that will, be, that will help in this kind of slow, steady march towards um, a more traditional finance-looking crypto market yeah absolutely that that's definitely a big one my sense is either they'll become more comfortable with it or, or we'll start to see a lot of innovation happening outside of the u.s right? potentially in other well, jurisdictions you're, I mean, you're already seeing that right i mean binance is just yeah. 
cleaning everybody's clock because yeah they don't have exactly. to go to the to SEC or FINRA and, and get the same kind of things that that you know US companies have to do. Yeah, absolutely. And that's why we see also some competitors, right? Like Circle moving a lot of their operations overseas as well. Yep. To kind of keep pace. So um last question, team. Um what are you excited about in the in the crypto market beyond staking? Like what what are some of the areas that you're most excited about? Well, we we in addition to staking, the decentralized finance is is a big area of effort for us. I think the you know getting to programmable money and the ability to really compose your financial stack in a couple different smart contracts in a way where you're it's a trustless environment that you you know exactly what you're interacting with. That for me is is the most exciting part, and frankly, probably more exciting and why I got into this business than just running staking, where it's, it's our job is running a really boring business, um, and we do that really well. But the the DeFi stuff, I think, is is the area where we spend a lot of time thinking about all the possibilities and get really excited. Yeah, that's fascinating, right? Thanks so much for coming on the show, team. Really enjoyed the conversation, and and thanks for sharing your insights. Yeah, thanks for, for having me and, and enjoyed the conversation as well. Thanks for listening. If you like this episode of The Blockchain DC and want to help us bring more awareness to the space, I'd really appreciate it if you can rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast. This only takes a few seconds and helps us get the word out.